today. I want to continue our series of messages concerning the hand of God. And I want to preach about the gracious hand of God, the gracious hand of God. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, let them be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you're our strength and you're our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was in 1955 where Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on that bus in Montgomery to move to the back where blacks would sit so she could make room for a white man in the front. As a consequence, she got arrested for that and became the catalyst for the Montgomery bus boycott that for more than one year, black people, Negroes, refused to ride the bus in Montgomery until they changed the policy so that blacks could be treated like everybody else. And it also brought to the forefront a young preacher by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. And then it was also in the 60s, the early 60s, those sit-ins that took place at lunch counters in key places across the United States where blacks would go and sit at the counter and refuse to move until they were served. They refused to go to the back to pay for food at the same price everybody else was paying but not have the same kind of service. And of course, there was violence against that peaceful protest, but they did it until policies got changed and were more inclusive. And then the March on Washington in 1963, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told us about a dream he had, a dream that his four little children would grow up in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Then it was in 1965, that march from Selma to Montgomery, that bloody Sunday when racism and, and white supremacists showed how ugly it is as they attacked those peaceful marchers and all of that was shown on television and it brought about the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and of course the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and all of this stuff was going on in the 60s with protest and violence and racial divide. And in those 60s, there were those who sought for unity in the United States that one after another in the 60s were being violently killed and destroyed. People like John F. Kennedy in 1963 when he was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. In that same year, Mega Evers was killed in his own yard as he sought to bring uh, some justice to black people in the South. And then, of course, Malcolm X in 1965 when he was also gunned down. And then in 1968 in Memphis, Martin Luther King Jr. on that balcony at the Lorraine Hotel was assassinated. And after Martin King was assassinated, protests took place all throughout the United States of America. And then not only the peaceful protests, but then there was violence and buildings being destroyed, and buildings being burned, and so much was going on as a protest against the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So all of this noise was being made, all of this protest, all of this social injustice, all of this racial divide was going on. And in the midst of all of that, in, on August the 4th, in 1961, a black African, a Kenyan, was married to a white woman, and they gave birth that day to their son. No fanfare, no national acclaim, no pageantry, nothing. Just they, they had a little baby boy. And that little boy that was born in the midst of all of that noise uh, in, in Hawaii ended up 
going to Harvard University, but he never would have been able to get into Harvard University had it not been for the civil rights movement and all the things and others that I just spoke of. And then he went on to become a senator for the state of Illinois. That never would have taken place had it not been for all the sacrificing and the protests and all the, the things that would change in terms of legislation and policy from the civil rights movement. Then he went on to become the first black president of the United States of America and Barack Obama brought Christianity to the White House and he brought integrity to the White House and morality to the White House and honesty to the White House and intelligence to the White House and promoted unity from the White House but none of that would have happened had it not been for the civil rights movement all of those people and their sacrifices were behind all of that all I'm trying to tell you is none of that happened by accident when all of that noise was being made, with all that social injustice, with all that racism, with all that was happening, that, that quiet birth in 1961 in Hawaii was God making a move. It was the gracious hand of God. It was not by accident. It was by intent. It was not by chance. It was by choice that when all that noise was being made, God was giving birth to somebody that would bring help and hope to this nation and I'm just trying to tell you God intervenes and God intercedes and God gets involved the hand of God speaks of the moving of God the it speaks of the manipulation how God manipulates situations how God moves and and how God works things out and what I'm trying to tell you is the time that we're living in now it's a lot of noise it's a lot going on but you don't know what God is giving birth to you don't know who God is giving birth to but I want you to understand about the gracious hand of God. That's what Nehemiah speaks of. In Nehemiah chapter 2, in verse 18, Nehemiah says, I also saw them about, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding so they began to do this good work. Nehemiah said, I also told them about the gracious hand of God that was on my life. Hallelujah to the Lamb. This is, of course, right after the Babylonian captivity when the children of Israel had been in bondage for 70 years by the Babylonians. But now, because of Persia conquering Babylon, and now uh, Israel gets to come back home. And that remnant that came back to Jerusalem, they come back and they begin to rebuild their homes and they rebuild their communities and their schools and their businesses. But the walls around Jerusalem are still down. Those walls were there for fortitude and protection and strength. And because they were still lying in ruin, then any opposition and any enemy did and could come over and make matters worse in terms of their rebuilding. And they're not under Babylonian captivity, but they still have to deal with the Persian authority. And it was during that time that there was a man by the name of Nehemiah. And he was a Hebrew, but he didn't live in Israel. He's a Hebrew, but he didn't live in Jerusalem. Nehemiah lived in Persia. He worked for the Persian king. He was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah had a good government job with a good wage, and he had all the benefits you could have, from a dental plan to a 401k to a health uh, care, all of that with the job that he had. But 
Nehemiah still identified with the hurts and the pains of the people that he was a part of in Jerusalem. The walls were down. People were getting hurt. Things were a mess. It was still wrecked and wretched and ruin that was taking place there. His brother, chapter 1 says, his brother came down and explained to him how bad it was in his home because Nehemiah had moved. He lived with the Persians, that he had a Persian house. Uh, he, he, had, he worked for the Persian government. He lived in a Persian neighborhood. He had a Persian education. He wore Persian clothes. He drove, drove a Persian chariot. But one thing I love about Nehemiah, uh, he realized none of that makes me a Persian. He still identified with his people. That's a lesson we can learn right there. That those of us who are black living in America, you may have gone to a European school and you may work for a European country, company, and you may wear European clothes and drive a European car, but that don't make you a European. Don't forget who you are. And Nehemiah said, I'm not going to forget where I came from and what I need to do. And when his brother explained how things were messed up because the wall was still down, there were some things still down in Israel that needed to be addressed. That's why the people were being hurt, because it was down. And he looked at that and said, social justice is down. He looked at that and said, the economy is down. He looked at that and said, the uh, educational system is down. The political system is down. And because all this stuff is down, my people are being hurt. And he was trying to figure out what to do. And when he went to work for that Persian king, the king looked at him and saw how depressed he was. He said, man, are you okay? Everything all right? And Nehemiah said, I'm, I'm doing good, but I'm feeling bad. Even though I'm doing good, I'm feeling bad because my people are hurting. My community is in danger because what is down there? And the king challenged him, well, what you going to do about it? And he said, king, I got to do something. I can't sit here with my cushy job and my good government job and then just ignore my people who are in trouble there. And the king said, well, what are you going to do? And that's when Nehemiah started praying. But then he told the king after the prayer, he said, here's, here's what I need. I, I, I want to go help my people. King said, well, how can I help you? And in chapter 2, it starts talking about the favor that Nehemiah got from, from his boss, from his supervisor, from that head of state of Persia. The favor he got. He said, King, I'm going to need to hold on to my job. I need to go back and help build this back up. But I need to hold on to my job. And the king said, I'm going to give you a leave of absence. No matter how long it takes you, when you get back, your job is going to be secure. You'll still make the same pay, same position, same benefits. What else do you need? He said, King, well, I'm going to need some timber, some wood. I'm going to need some resources to help build the wall back up. I, can't, I, I need some help with this. King said, I'm going to give you all the resources that you need to help build what you need to build in your community. You need anything else, the king said. He has the favor of the king. And Nehemiah said, yeah, I need a letter from you. Because when we're taking these resources uh, back to Jerusalem, I'm, we're going to be getting stopped in different regions by different leaders. And I need a letter from you, king. Because if they see your signature on the letter and your signet and they see your stamp, they'll leave me alone, that letter of authority. And the king said, I, you got that. And he said, king, I'm going to need some protection. I'm going to be riding with all these resources and folk may try to take what I have. King said, I'm going to give you my own security team and I'm going to give you the protection that you need. Here's what I want you to get. Chapter 2 talks about the favor that the king had for Nehemiah. But Nehemiah didn't use the favor on himself. He used the favor for his community. He used the favor for his people. Y'all, we got to learn that. There's so many of us 
who've accepted Jesus as our personal Savior. You believe Jesus died on the cross. You believe God raised him from the dead. The moment you do that, you become a Christian. God is your father. Jesus is your big brother. Holy Spirit is your keeper. And I praise God for that. And then we start talking about the favor of God in our life. And, and it, it is the favor. But that's a catch word in the church. The favor of God. I got the favor of God. The unmerited favor. God blessing me even when I don't deserve it. The, God, the favor of God gave me a house. The favor of God got me the job. The favor of God got me a promotion. The favor. But here's what I want you to understand. When Nehemiah got all that favor, he didn't just use it on himself. He used it on his community that was hurting and needed that favor the most. You and I, when God shows favor on us, and when we have the favor of people, why don't we use that? When God blesses you, it's not just for you, it's for you to bless somebody else. When God opens the door for you, it's not just for you to walk through, but when you walk through it, hold it open so somebody else can get in. God gives us the favor of people and the favor of God so we can be a blessing to somebody else, and that's what Nehemiah did. He took all that favor, and now he goes into Israel. He shows up in Jerusalem and the walls are down. They're wrecked. They're wrecked and in ruin, leaving it open for opposition and enemies to come in. That's why the people are hurting so much, trying to rebuild after all that oppression. But there's some things that were down that needed to be addressed. Nehemiah got there. He said that for three days, he just examined uh, the ruin. He just, he got on his horse by himself and he just rode around and the walls was around the whole city. And he rode by himself for three days. Matter of fact, the Bible says he did it in the dark. And he didn't say anything to anybody for three days. That's because Nehemiah sought to examine what the situation was all about. He wanted to make an analysis. What is really going on here? And I know what you're going to say. Well, I thought his brother came and told him what was happening. He heard his brother. He believed his brother. That's why he was there. But he said, I'm not going to just take my brother's word for it. I'm going to examine it for myself. I want to see for myself what's going on in my community. And I know that we got the mass media and, and we got mainstream media and we have black media and we have social media and all. But, y'all, at some point, we got to come out and examine it for ourselves. You and I got to see for ourselves what is really going on in our community. Why is all this social injustice? Why is all this racism? Why this economic divide? What, what is going on here? What is happening with our people in this time? And he decided, I'm going to examine it. I'm going to analyze it for myself. And when he did, and I, I love this about Nehemiah, that he didn't try to expand it and make it worse than it was. It was bad. It's ruined. It's messed up. And things are happening that did not need to happen. But he didn't make it worse than it was. He didn't just give up on everything. And that's how some of us are. We're so pessimistic. We believe that there is no help and there is no hope. We just expand it and make it worse. It's already bad, but you don't have to make it worse than it is. Because we have God, we have Jesus, we have his Holy Spirit, and we have people with the gifts of God and the anointing of God on their life, there's always help and hope. You don't have to expand it and make it worse. And neither did, uh, when he analyzed it, Nehemiah didn't try to eliminate the problem. Some of us do that. We try to ignore it and act like it's not there. We're so spiritual and so in tune with God that I'm not going to claim it. I don't claim what's happening. You don't have to claim it. Racism claims you. Social injustice claims you. This economic downturn claims you. Come on, I'm going to opt out of the economic downturn. No, you lost your job. I'm, I'm not going to claim the coronavirus. No, you're sick. Y'all, we cannot fix it if we do not face it. Uh, well, preacher, if I, don't, if I don't 
eliminate it, if I don't expand it, then how am I supposed to deal with what we're going through? Well, Nehemiah experienced it. For, for three days, he experienced what was going on. He wanted to see for himself. He wanted to analyze it on his own. And that's what we're going to have to do, whether you realize it or not. We're going to have to go on and experience I know we don't want to, but we're gonna, we just have to experience the mess that this nation is in right now. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 23, verse 4, it said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Yeah, I got to walk through. I don't want to be in this valley, but I have to be in the valley. I have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I, I, I can't act like it's not here. I have to experience this. I'm not going to walk around the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not going to bypass the valley of the shadow of death. And I'm not going to stop and give up in the valley. I'm going to make it through. I don't want to be here. I don't want to have to deal with this. But I know one thing. I'm going to get through it. Because on the other side of that valley, there's so the reason why we have to experience the valley because there's something on the other side that's waiting on us. Well, the Lord will anoint our head with oil and our cup of blessings will run over where there's a table that is prepared before us that God prepares it in the face of folk that don't even want you to have anything. And God will provide permanent housing. You'll live in the house of the Lord forever. There's some stuff on the other side. So let's experience what we have to experience. So there he is. For three days in the dark, he didn't say anything to anybody. Now, that's significant right there. Because Nehemiah understands no matter what I'm thinking, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what my plans are, no matter what I've come up with, I've got to be careful not to tell it too soon. For three days, he didn't tell nobody. He didn't tell the priests. He didn't tell the elders. He didn't tell the people. He didn't tell the officials. He didn't tell anybody. Because you've got to be careful about speaking your dreams and vision too soon. I learned that in ministry for myself. And then, of course, I, I finally understood what was happening in the book of Genesis. There was a young 17-year-old named Joseph. And Joseph had a vision and a dream he got from God. And as soon as he got that vision and dream, he went and told his brothers. And his brothers beat him down, threw him in a pit, lied about it, left him for dead, did all kind of mess to him. But that's because he told his dreams too soon. And Nehemiah is teaching you and I, don't, don't tell your dreams too soon and be careful who you tell your dreams to. And after that three-day period, though, Nehemiah teaches us, he said, that's when I, I begin to speak to the people. Matter of fact, Nehemiah says he spoke to everybody. He says he spoke to the people. He spoke to the priests. He spoke to the elders. He spoke to the officials. He spoke to everybody. We need to rebuild this. We can't leave this in ruin like it is. And he began to have this conversation with them. And Nehemiah didn't wait on everybody to positively respond to the conversation. That's why some of us aren't doing anything right now. You did hold a conversation, and you told everybody and anybody that would listen, like Nehemiah. But then you got frustrated and got disappointed because there were some people that wouldn't listen to you. And some people said, you shouldn't go down there, you shouldn't be, and you need to leave that alone, and that's never going to work. And because everybody wouldn't receive what you were speaking, then you gave up on what God called you to do. No, you can't be like that. Nehemiah told everybody, uh, and he told anybody, but everybody didn't join in with it. He just went with somebody. <laughs> That's what I learned that a long time ago. Everybody ain't going to receive this message, but anybody who wants to receive the message of salvation and what we need to be doing in community, we can get it done. I'm not waiting on everybody. Jesus didn't even get everybody. Jesus came from heaven to earth and began to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
There were people that rejected that, but he didn't go back to heaven because everybody didn't receive it. Matter of fact, he had 12 disciples. Judas didn't make it. He, he told everybody, but everybody didn't make it. It's the somebodies that make a difference. And go ahead. Nehemiah did. <laughs> he told everybody. And then just whoever was willing to get, and so he holds these conversations. And when he held the conversations, the first thing he did was told them about what they could see. He starts saying about the ruin and the wreckage that was going on. He starts saying about how unprotected they were and how mess they could see that. But after he talked about what everybody could see, then Nehemiah began to talk about what they could not see. Well, what is it that they could not see? You see the wreckage. You see the ruin. But the reason you're so hopeless, the reason you feel so helpless, because you don't see the generous hand of God. And Nehemiah said in, 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 in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, and I told them about the hand of God. It's a generous hand. He said, I had nothing when I came here, but I got the favor of the king. And because of the generosity of my God, I have every, all the resource we need to build this thing back up. I have the hearts of the people and the minds of the people because of the generosity of God. Y'all don't miss out on that. That the things that we're looking for will not come all from people, will not come all from organizations, will not come all from government, will not come all from institutions. But I thank God, I serve a God that is just, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches. And my God can open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. You won't have room enough to receive it all. God can bless you in such a way that he will give to you good measures, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And all day I can talk about the very thing that the way God moves with his generous hand, don't miss out on that. I know we talk about everything that folk with, that we can see. Yeah, we, we see racial divide. We see social injustice. We see police brutality. We see uh, unarmed black men being gunned down by those who are supposed to protect and serve. We see communities of black and brown people and poor people who've been overlooked for far too long. And we see a head of state that doesn't even care about the citizenry of his own nation. That how can you violently attack peaceful protesters so that you can walk and stand in front of a church that you don't, you're not a part of and hold up a book that you refuse to read because if you would open that book and read it, uh, you would read the fact that blessed are the peacemakers. If you would open that book and read it, uh, you would read about that you ought to love others uh, the way you love yourself. That if you would open that book and read it, it says something about loving God and loving other people. If you would open that book and read it, it talks about by this shall all people know that you are my disciple, that you love one another, but you can't just hold the book up for a picture and refuse to read it. The scriptures don't say anything about holding up the book. It says, God hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So all this stuff that we see, but don't forget, there's something you can't see evidently. That's the generous hand of God. And what we spoke about, what they could not see, was the gracious hand of God. In Nehemiah 2 and 18, he said, and I told them about the gracious hand of God, the favor of God that's on my life. Y'all, in the midst of all that we're going through, you don't know what God's giving birth to. You don't know 
who God is giving birth to. You don't know who God is raising up. We're looking at all this noise, and we don't know that in some uh, obscure place right now, God is raising up sons and daughters, men and women that can and will make a difference to build what we need in this nation. It's the favor of God that makes those kind of connections. Uh, my first trip to Haiti was after that earthquake in Haiti where an earthquake and poverty collided in one of the poorest nations in the world. And then, of course, hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. It was a mess over there. And we saw all that on our television with the news. And, of course, I went to our congregation, the Eastern Star Church. I said, y'all, we got to do something. And we began to collect resources, but that wasn't enough. I said, we got to do something else. And I began to call on other pastors and ministers who I'd preached for and taught and consulted with. And I began to call, and I, I, I mostly Indiana pastors, and we were able to raise significant resources. And then I called others from around the nation. Other pastors began to call me. And more than 30 churches came together and, and got together a, more than a million dollars that we gave to Haiti through Convoy of Hope, this, this, this uh, national, or should I say international relief group, because they were already in Haiti when it happened. They were already doing work over there. And so we provided them those resources from those 30 churches, but that wasn't enough. I said, we got to do something else. So I decided to go to Haiti myself. Took me a while to get over. I had to figure out how to get over there. Darren Shesky pastors a church in Fishers, Indiana, my, my good friend. And I said, man, I know you grew up in Haiti. He's a white man. His parents were missionaries in Haiti. He had his childhood over there. I said, man, you got to get us over there. And he figured out a way to get us over there. It was about a month after the earthquake had hit. And he said, Pastor, I found us somewhere to stay, but I need to tell you, because of how messed up it is after this earthquake, couldn't get any hotels over there. I said, I, that, I just want to get over there. Where we stand? He said, we're going to stay at an office building, but the building has been affected negatively by the earthquake. But they said we can stay, sleep on the floor. So we're going to take sleeping bags. I said, that's okay. If Jesus can come from heaven to earth and go through what he went through, I'll be able to sleep in the sleeping bag. He said, but now the power has been shut down in that building. Ain't no electricity over there. I said, okay, well, let's still go. He said, now, and no running water over there either. So even when we go to the bathroom, we got to use the outhouse. I said, whatever it takes, the sacrifice Jesus made for me, we'll do that. He said, and they, they can't promise us any food over there. They said, they'll try to get beans and rice for us once a day. Well, I had been fasting anyway. That's one meal more than what I had been getting. And we decided to go on over there, even though we're going to sleep on a floor in an office building that's been impacted by the earthquake. We're going to sleep in sleeping bags. We're going to have the take use the bathroom in our house. We're going to have to take a bath or at least try to have some hygiene from bottled water. We're going to have beans and rice once a day and go over and see what's happening. I was going to do like Nehemiah. I just wanted to examine what was going on and see it for myself. And so we flew from Indianapolis into Miami. Now it's a, the connecting flight is in Miami to go to Haiti. It's about a 90-minute flight from Miami to Haiti. That's how close it is to us. And when we were in the airport in Miami, Darren Shesky saw Hal Donaldson, who I didn't even know who he was. He said, man, that's, that's Hal Donaldson. I said, man, I don't know who that is. He said, man, that's the president, CEO, and founder of Convoy of Hope. That's who we gave all that money to to do that work over there. So we went over, introduced ourselves. He didn't know us. I didn't know him. We introduced ourselves. He thanked us for what we did. We thanked him for his work. And then he said, where y'all staying over in Haiti? Where we, we said, well, we going just to evaluate. He said, well, where y'all stand? So we told him sleeping bag and no power, no electricity, one meal a day, beans and rice. We told him that. He said, he said now, why don't y'all just 
come stay with us. I ain't even asked where y'all stand. I just say, yes, it had to be better than the situation we were in. I say, yes, we're going to stay with you. And they ended up having a decent hotel. It wasn't a Conrad, Indianapolis, but it was a decent hotel that had power at least till 6 p.m. And we got two meals a day, beans and rice twice a day. So that's twice as good as I was going to have it in the other place. Had electricity and running water. At least I could take a shower every day. But my point is this. Somebody would say, man, that's a great coincidence that y'all would meet the president and founder Convoy of Hope on, on the same flight y'all going. That, that, out of all the flights they could have taken, they could have gone the day before. That, no, 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 it wasn't no coincidence. It's the providence of God. It's not by chance. It's by choice. It's the gracious hand of God making connection. I want to show you something else. When we got over there, uh, Convoy of Hope were out doing their thing. Well, we were doing our thing. And we were evaluating and looking and seeing what's going on, how we can help and come alongside. I ran into another group called Mission Hope. And they were doctors from the state of Indiana. I met them over in Haiti. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. They said, what y'all doing over here? We told them, what y'all doing? Well, we working with clinics. And I said, well, how's the work going? They said, well, it was going good until we ran out of food. I said, ran out of food. They said, yeah, when the earthquake came, we, we couldn't get food. I said, well, where were you getting food from? From, from Haiti. We were getting beans and rice from Haiti to, to give it to the patients who were coming in there. But that, that, that stopped. I said, well, have y'all heard? of Convoy of Hope? I said, no, we ain't never heard of them. I said, man, let me, let me help you understand. So I hooked Convoy of Hope up with Mission Hope, these doctors from Indiana that were blessing the Haitian people in clinics, and I hooked them up with a group that gives food to people all over the known world. That's not an accident. That is the providence of God. That is the favor of God. And I can look in my own life and look in our nation and see God's hand-making moves. But if you're not careful, you'll look at the, the badness of people and miss out on the goodness of God. You'll look out at the hatred of people and miss out on the love of God. He told them about what they could not see, the generous hand of God, the gracious hand of God. Let me give you one more. And he told them about the glorious hand of God. He tells them in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, he says that the God of heaven will give us success. The God of heaven will give us the victory. That's why I'm talking about the glorious hand of God. Y'all, God is undefeated. All of you are wondering, are we going to make it? Is things going to get better? I don't know. Are you feeling helpless and hopeless? We serve a God who is undefeated. And Nehemiah told him that the, the, the glorious hand of God is going to give us the victory. I love that. And that's when the people said, all right then, then let us build. I love that. He said, God's going to give us the victory. They said, let us build. They didn't say, all right, Nehemiah, you go on and build. And they didn't say, I'm going to build. They said, let us build. Something is torn down, something messed up. Our people are hurting. Our people are in trouble. But if it's going to get any better, let us build. This is, this is not just... Uh, operation. They didn't just operate. They learned how to cooperate. Our issue is we got a lot of people out here operating, but we don't know how to cooperate. Y'all, we do better when we work together. One could put a thousand to flight. Two could put 10,000 to flight. We do better when we work together, Ephesians 4. We ought to unite for the work of the ministry. When I try to do things on my own, does it make a difference? Yes, but when I connect with somebody else, we're able to do more. I pastor a great church 
and we've done some marvelous things, but when we partner with other ministries and other churches and other institutions and organizations that have the same heart for community that we have, a difference is made. It's not just operate, it's cooperate. Let us, it's not just me, myself, and I. That issue right there, that mentality right there gonna mess us up. This me, myself, just looking out for yourself. No, it's we, us, and our. There's some people sitting on the sideline doing nothing saying, well, if I protest, if I march, if I write, if I say something, if I do something, what might happen to me? That's the wrong mentality. Not if I do something, what might happen to me? If I don't do anything, what might happen to other people? It's not me, myself, and I. It's we, us, and our, and let us rise up and build. And they began to build. And I want to show you this. I got to read a little bit of this. In Nehemiah chapter in Nehemiah chapter 3, he begins to talk about the work. That, he said, and we built the wall. And he said, we built it because the people had a mind to work. It's a mental thing, not just resources. It's a mental thing. We had a mind to work. We had a heart to work. And in chapter 3, he doesn't generalize. He could have stopped right there. And we rebuilt it. We did it. We got it up. No, he's, he, I, he itemized it. Listen to what he said in Nehemiah chapter 3. He said that the high priest and the fellow priest, they built the sheep gate. In verse 2 of chapter 3, the men of Jericho, they built the adjoining section. And then in verse 3, the fish gate, they were built by the sons of Heshanah. And then Merah, his family, they built the next section. And as you go through chapter 3, you see organizations and families that come out to build certain sections. No one person was building the entire wall Everybody and their families took a section to build it. And that's what I'm trying to get across to us. Yes, it's messed up. Yes, it's a mess. Yes, it's wretched. Yes, there is wreckage. Yes, it's ruined. But if everybody just take a section, if, if, if me and my family and, and, and my community and my church, if we can just take a section, if you can take the adjoining section and you, if, if you can take the next section and everybody just comes and do their part, we can build something uniquely special in this nation that will make a difference to everybody that lives here. He said, the Lord will give us the victory. And then they said, let us build. And I want you to understand, he declared victory before they started building. That's what I'm trying to get across. They weren't building for victory. They were building from victory. Y'all, as we're seeking to build social justice, as we're seeking to build the economy up, as we're seeking to build up education and inclusiveness and love and unity, when we're doing that, we're not doing it for victory. We're doing it from victory. We already have the victory. Yo, all this mess we're in, it's not a surprise to me. I know that somebody told you, if you accept Jesus, all your issues are done and problems. That's a, that's a big lie. Here's what Jesus said in the Bible. Jesus said, in this world, you shall have tribulation. I'm not surprised by all hell being broke loose. Why? Jesus told us, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But he went on to say, but be of good courage, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I've already overcome. We already have the victory. We're not working and serving and doing what we're doing in hopes to get the victory. We're doing it because we already have the victory. But that victory doesn't come without opposition. Sanballat, 
Tobias and others were messing with Nehemiah and the workers. They put a hit out on, on Nehemiah. He's trying to build a wall. They put a hit out on him. Some people don't want it built back up because they take advantage of what is down. They benefit from what is down. And they told Nehemiah, come down from the work so we can talk about it. So you want me to stop working, to come down to talk to you about the work? He said, no, I'm not coming down. I'm going to finish what God has given us to finish here. And he kept on working and kept on doing God, but it wasn't without opposition. Yes, when we protest, there will be opposition. Yes, when we march, there will be opposition. Who was it? William J. Shaw that said, the demonic always tries to take advantage of hurting people. That's why when we try to have peaceful protests, you got people out here doing some stuff that is violent. Yeah, but it's, that's the opposition we got to deal with. Folk trying to distract from what's really going on. That's the opposition. Folk talking about you. People lying on you. People that are trying to bring you down. That's the opposition. But we still have the victory despite the opposition. Let me close it like this. I'll close it like this. Um, I, I'm a big NBA fan. I got it missed during the pandemic. I really, really missed uh, the, the NBA. I, I miss watching the NBA. I'm, I'm a big fan. And one thing I learned about the NBA a long time ago is that every single player on every single team in the NBA, all of them can play. Because I hear people talking about, well, you know, I don't know how he got on the team because he can't play. I'm telling y'all, all the players on any NBA team, they couldn't have gotten to that level if they could not play that game of basketball. And I hear Charles Barkley saying there's some people in the NBA and they on team, but they just can't play. No, they can't play at your level. But they can play. I know it don't look like it now, but I used to be a decent basketball player. And when I went to college, I started playing basketball every single day, every day. I, even after I got married, I played basketball every day. So I played in pro-am tournaments where you have professionals and amateurs. I, I played in dust bowls with professionals uh, from the NBA. I played in our own gym with NBA players. So I, I, I played at rec centers with NBA players, I, at celebrity games with NBA players. And I guarantee you, all of them can play. And those in arguing with me, no, they can't play. Play one of them one-on-one. -on -one. That, that 12th player sitting on the bench that never gets in the game, and when he does, he gets zero points and one rebound. He can still play. And I, and I know you're wondering, then, why doesn't he get in the game? Why, why doesn't he get the same time that LeBron gets or same time that Jordan got or Steph Curry? Because here's the thing. You're talking about the greatest players in the game, and there's a reason they got to that level. And they, they, they are the great ones, the ones you're naming, but these other players, they can, they can dribble, they can shoot, they can pass, they can score, they can do all of that. Then preacher, why didn't they get up to the level with Durant and the Greek freak and AD? Why didn't they do that? Because Kobe Bryant, the Kobe Bryants of the world, they're able to do all of that against opposition they're able to do it when people are trying to stop them all of them can do it but they can't the only way you can get to the level of a kobe bryant or a greek freak you got to be able to do it when folk are trying to stop you preacher why did you tell us that story because anybody can be a christian but can you live that christian life in the face of opposition anybody can preach and teach and serve god but can you do it when folk are trying to stop you? Anybody can protest and march and try to have an, a social justice agenda and inclusiveness of everybody. 
But can you do it in the face of opposition? If we're going to go from faith to faith and level to level, it's understanding we already have the victory, but it's not going to come without opposition. But I know I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. The victory is already yours because of the gracious hand of God that is working while all of this noise is going on. God is giving birth to people. God is giving birth in different places. God is giving birth to institutions. God is giving birth to organizations. God is giving birth to ministries that's going to show up and bring us the deliverance that we need as we work together. The victory is already yours. We used to sing about that when I was a, king, when I was a kid in church. Victory is mine. Victory, victory, victory is mine. I told Satan to get thee behind because victory today is mine. And I pray that those who are still struggling with your theology and trying to figure out where is God in all of this, to know God still loves you. Jesus still died on the cross for you. And Jesus was still anointed, not just to preach to the poor, but to set captives free, that social agenda that Jesus had. But you need a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. 